He was arguably the, the greatest evangelist in his century. He was most certainly one of the most amazing pastors in the church of his day. You can read some of his letters and you can see his pastoral heart. He was, without a shadow of a doubt, the most outstanding theologian of his generation and perhaps in the history of the Christian church, with the exception of Jesus. I'm speaking, of course, of the Apostle Paul. But we must remember he was just an ordinary Christian like you and me, filled with the Holy Spirit, saved by the grace of God. And one of the things I love about the Apostle Paul in reading his pastoral epistles in the New Testament is that throughout them all, he's vulnerable enough to share his personal struggles. One of the things I love about the Apostle Paul is his raw honesty. And one of the things we see in 2 Corinthians is that he was one who was prone to lose heart, to get discouraged. Often because things were working against him and his ministry. In the passage that's there before us this evening, we'll see that he gives three main reasons why he was prone to losing heart, why he was prone to being downcast. And also in this passage, we'll see that he gives six reasons why he was always and often, at the same time, encouraged by the gospel. And I thought we'd look at this passage as a means of encouragement for ourselves as we begin this new year. Now, let me just briefly give you a recap. Second Corinthians, written by the Apostle Paul. Um, he, you remember, he planted the church in Corinth. It was a church that was in a mess. And indeed, when we read the, the, the second letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth, the church was being led astray by a group of false teachers, men called super apostles. And what we discover in 2 Corinthians is they were seeking to sabotage his ministry, seeking to d- d- discredit the name of the apostle Paul. And so Paul, the pastor, writes to these Christians pleading with them to remember the truth of the gospel he had shared with them. Now, let me just give, let's just take a cursory reading at the things that it discouraged and disheartened Paul. Look down at verses 2 and 3. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. By implication, what Paul says here is he's speaking about the ministry of these false teachers, these so-called super apostles, and he's saying that they've come into the church in Corinth and they're employing disgraceful, underhanded ways in their ministry. Even deception, cunning. They're tampering with God's word. And as the pastor who planted this church, this pained the apostle. Those who were now overseeing the church he'd once planted and pastored, they were frauds, they were sham. Now listen, this isn't just a first century problem, this is also a 
a 21st century problem. You get false teachers in every generation. You know one of the most discouraging things is that you can look around the Christian church worldwide and there are many men and many women who claim the name of Christ and they are wolves in sheep's clothing. They employ disgraceful, underhanded ways to manipulate people, to get money and favors. You think of the wealth, health, and prosperity movement. They they propagate false truths. Some of them claim to be faith healers. They make false promises. And you know, one of the most discouraging things is when you meet Christians who have imbibed these lies. But you know, the wealth, health, and prosperity movement, they're an easy target. Sometimes false teachers come dressed as sheep. In the Reformed Evangelical Movement, we've, been with our, we've had our own scandals in recent, recent years. And it is so disheartening, so discouraging. Because the heart of any saint to be downcast. So first of all, false teachers, these super apostles, they were a source of major discouragement for Paul. But another major discouragement was the God of this age. Look at verses 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, the God of this age, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. One of the things that really pained Paul's heart was that for so many people in Corinth, the reason they didn't believe was because Satan had blinded them to who Jesus was and to what Jesus had done. They failed to see the the glory of Christ. In fact, instead, they were captivated and captured by these super apostles and by this world. And again, this isn't just a first century problem. This is a very much so a contemporary problem. How many of us have loved ones that we would long to see in the kingdom. But the reason they're not in the kingdom is because they've been blinded by the God of this age. How many of our friends, our, our colleagues, our neighbors have got a, just a complete disinterest in the gospel? Maybe it's a child, a sibling. There's nothing that gives you even the slightest hint that they're interested in the faith. We, we have a conversation with them about the gospel and there seems to be this veil over their eyes. How discouraging is it when you've raised a kid in the faith, you've, you've seen them baptized, you've sought to see them grow, and yet they've abandoned it. They prefer lies and they prefer darkness. They prefer blindness over truth, light, and sight. And this pained Paul. It caused him to lose heart. It discouraged him. So false teachers, the God of this age, but that wasn't the only thing that discouraged Paul. So too did the hardship and the sufferings of the Christian life and ministry. Look at verses 8 and 9. We are afflicted in every way, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. You can skip down to verse 16. Another reason he says there is that outwardly, his outward self is wasting away. We don't know about Paul's state, but we know one thing, that because of the many beatings he'd have he received because of the shipwrecks he was in. He was a man with a body that suffered a great deal. 
We don't know what the thorn in the flesh was. Some have speculated he may have had an eyesight problem. He may have lived with a a constant weakness in his life. It discouraged him. It got him down. And the suffering he received as a Christian, every time he seemed to take two steps forward for the gospel, there would be those who would come and they would persecute him. They would seek to destroy the work he was doing. It got him down. I wonder, are there times in your Christian life there's things that get you down? You seem to take two steps forward in your Christian life and then you end up taking ten ten steps backwards. Because of suffering, because of persecution, because of rejection. Or perhaps it's just your your body, it's failing you, it's frail in different ways. Maybe it's your mind, maybe it's your mental health. Again, it's not just a first century problem, it's very much a contemporary problem. So Paul was someone who lost heart at times because of false teachers, the God of this age, and because of various sufferings, hardships, and even bodily weakness. So here's the question. In the face of all these discouragements, where did he go to find strength to keep on keeping on? Well, if there are three things that caused him to lose heart, get this, there are now six reasons he gives in this passage that caused him to take heart. There there are double the more reasons for encouragement, Paul lays out here, than for discouragement. Reason number one, the mercy of God. Look at verse one. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. What kept Paul from losing heart in his Christian life and in his ministry? The mercy of God. Church family, it is when we lose sight of the mercy of God that has been poured out on us that we lose perspective, that we lose heart. It's this reason why every single day we need to remember afresh the mercy that has been poured out on our lives. We need to remember what God has done for us in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want a New Year's resolution, here's a New Year's resolution. Wake up every morning and thank God for the mercy he gives you. It's new every morning because great is his faithfulness. You know, when you read through the the, the pastoral epistles of Paul, you know the one thing he never got over? was the mercy that was poured out in his life by God. He never forgot his testimony. He never forgot what he was before he was in Christ. Paul says, this is Paul speaking, right? He was a violent man. He was a persecutor of God's people. He was a blasphemer. He was a religious terrorist, extremist. But all that changed when God arrested him on the road to Damascus and the man whose eyes were blind were opened to see the sun and to hear the sun. And Paul realized he did not deserve of God. He did not merit it. He deserved the just judgment of God, but instead he was shown mercy. One of the ways to to not lose heart is remind yourself of the mercy that you've been shown. And it's not just past mercy, it's present mercy. 
Notice that Paul says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God. Paul knew that he'd planted this church in Corinth. He'd been an ambassador for Jesus Christ and the gospel. It wasn't because of his cleverness. It wasn't because of his giftedness. It wasn't because of his pastoral heart or his eloquent tongue. It was all because of the mercy of God. You know, Paul knew this, that the difference between him and the false teachers in the church was the mercy of God. God had opened his eyes. Their eyes were still blind. They were still walking in darkness. Paul knew the only difference between him and them was mercy. Can I ask you a question? What comes to your mind when you hear this statement or this phrase, mercy ministry? If what comes to your mind, first of all, is someone giving someone else something to at least the lost, the last, then you have lost sight of the mercy of God because mercy ministry at its heart and at its root is God having mercy on us, his people. Before we ever do anything to anyone else, we need God to have mercy on us. Paul did not look. Satan does all in his power to keep unbelievers from seeing what? From seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. But then look at what he, he writes in verse 6. For God who said, let light, light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Satan tries to obscure us from seeing Christ, who he is, in all his glory. And Paul says, God is the one who enables us to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know what will keep one keeping on in the Christian life? It's catching a sight of who Jesus is in all his glory. You know the way that the sun gives us light, gives us life, gives us vitamins? I don't know if any of you struggle with sad disorder, you know, seasonal affective disorder, you know, you're not getting enough sunlight. When you gaze upon the Son of God, the Son in all his glory, you start to flourish and thrive. He gives you light and life. He's the one who you were made to live in relationship with. You know when you start backsliding? It's when you take your eyes off Jesus. It's when you start fixing your eyes on everything and anyone else and everything else. And Paul says the thing that kept him keeping on, not losing heart, was beholding the glory of Christ. Now, this is so subtle, but in verse 5, Paul realized that there was something that could easily distract him from the glory of Christ. Look at what he says. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. It's not just looking at other things that can keep you from seeing the glory of Christ. It's looking at yourself. One of the subtle strategies of Satan for every preacher is that he wants to get us to preach self and not Christ. Paul remembered that what the people of God need, what he needed himself, was to remember the glory of Christ. That's what encouraged him. That's what kept him from discouragement. So the mercy of God, the glory of God. Now, this is my favorite one, right? The surpassing 
power of God. Look at verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I think this is the most staggering fact of Christianity, or one of them at least. God entrusts his most precious gift, the gospel, his Holy Spirit himself, into people like you and me. We're broken, we're messed up, we're sinners, and yet he places his precious possession himself, his gospel, in you and me. Do you know that it's been a practice from ancient times to place precious possessions in the strangest of places? So some people, if they've got a precious antique, they'll hide it in their house somewhere. Some people are saving up, they've got a stash of cash, they'll store it away somewhere, often somewhere strange. So a few years back, there was a, an article about um, a group of college graduates living in upstate New York, three of them, and they chose to rent an apartment together. And being strapped college uh, graduates, they decided that they needed to furnish this new apartment that they'd moved in. So they went down and visited the local Salvation Army charity shop to see what they could pick. And one of the things that was on their hit list was a couch. But the problem with a new apartment in upstate New York was that it was a tiny, tiny apartment, so they couldn't get a big couch, and all the couches they could see were big. And then there in the corner, they saw this little couch that they knew would fit. But the problem with it was it was shabby, it was smelly, it just was not the sort of couch you wanted to bring into your home. So they swithered among themselves whether or not they should buy it. And at the last minute, they said, it's only 20 bucks. Let's just buy it. They took it home. And they realized not only it was, it was, it was a, an ugly couch, a smelly couch, but it was a most uncomfortable couch. And so as they tried to make it comfortable, they started patting down the cushions on it. And, and as they were doing that, they realized there's something strange. And out of one cushion that they opened up, they pulled out one envelope, and in that envelope was $700. Pulled out another envelope, and in that envelope was $10,000. They started just pulling out all these envelopes. At the end, they laid all the money on one of the beds in their house, and they'd found $40,000 in this old, shabby, smelly couch that they bought for 20 bucks. Now, do you know the dilemma they had? Keep the money, pay off their, some of their college debts, travel the world. Try and trace whose money, whose couch this once was. The college students didn't know what to do, so the graduates didn't know what to do. So what they did is they phoned their parents and asked for advice. <laughs> and their parents gave them this advice. Don't tell anyone, but you should try and look into it and see if you can trace the owner of the couch. And just by chance, on one of the envelopes they'd pulled out of the couch, it had a name and an address. They located the person who'd owned this couch. It was a 91-year-old woman, and her sons had come into her house, and they were so annoyed with this old couch that they took it straight down to the Salvation Army charity store, not knowing that part of their inheritance was in that couch. The old woman, being a generous woman, gave them $1,000 each. I was so thankful they returned her son's inheritance. But you know where that practice of storing precious possessions came from? It came from God. 
God stores his gospel in crackpots like you and me. Now, 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 see when I say crackpots there? Let me explain. See, when Paul was writing this letter, see if you had money, see if you had gold, you know what you would do? In the first century, Corinth, you'd have a little clay pot and you'd put it in it. You'd dig a hole in your back garden, you'd bury it. And see when you wanted it, you'd just take it and you'd just smash it. And there you had your precious possession back. Now this is why God in his wisdom puts his precious possession in people like you and me is because we are cracked. We are fragile. But it's so that we can showcase the surpassing power that belongs to God and not to us. It's when we are weak, he is strong. It's in our weakness, it's in our brokenness that his power is showcased in our lives. The amazing thing is Paul did not lose heart. It's because he knew that God had put his most precious possession in someone like him. And so if you don't want to lose heart, just remember you're a crackpot. God has put his precious possession so that it may shine and showcase from your life. The fourth reason that Paul did not lose heart was the death of Jesus. Look at verse 8 and 9 again. He explains the battering that this little crack, that this little clay pot of his life received. He says, we are afflicted in every way. Not crushed, perplexed, not driven to despair, persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, not destroyed. As I said earlier, that one of the things that really caused Paul to lose heart was the suffering he faced in ministry. But you know that there's all those buts. Afflicted, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Now, all those buts point us to the point. Here's the point. It's so that the death of Jesus may be made manifest. So look at what he says in verses 10 and 11. 12. Here's his reasoning. We, always carry, we are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul understood this, right? Jesus' death brought life. Jesus' death reveals the love of God. Paul now asserts to us the death of Jesus is actually the shape and the pattern of the Christian life. Do you know that the Christian life is a, is a life of daily dying, daily deaths to self? And when we die to self and live for Christ, then Christ, his life, his love is made manifest in and through our life. Here's the, the paradox of the Christian life, right? When you die to self, you bring life to others. When you die to self, you bring life to others. That's what he's saying at the end there. Death is at work in us, but life in you. Now, our, our, our death to self is not an atoning death, but it's the death of sacrificial. We, 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 we die to self. We become living sacrifices in view of God's mercy so that we might live holy and pleasing lives to God. Gospel ministry without dying is not gospel ministry. Gospel ministry always looks like dying 
to self. So you don't want to lose heart. Remember that what keeps us going is that when we die daily deaths to self, then we manifest the life of Christ. Reason number five, nearly there. Another reason Paul did not lose heart was the resurrection of Jesus. Look at verses 13 to 15. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, so I spoke. We also believe, so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. You know when you're tempted to stop speaking? It's when you stop believing. And you know, if we can be really honest for one moment, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not happen, we might all as well stop believing. Paul said it. We of all people in the planet should be most pitied if Jesus is not raised from the dead. But here's the thing. It's because Jesus is raised from the dead, that means that we've got new life and we will live with him in his presence forevermore. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes absolutely everything. And because the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything, we must believe and therefore speak. The the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives meaning to our lives, to our words, to everything we do in the name of Christ. It's interesting, speaking about the Holy Spirit being at work in the life of the believer, look at verse 16, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Because of Christ's resurrection from the dead by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit now lives in believers, and do you know what he's doing in us? He's renewing us. He's enabling us to live in the newness of life in Christ. There's always this paradoxical reality going on in our lives. We're dying, but we've been made new. And it's all because of the resurrection of Jesus. And when Paul uh, reminded himself of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he did not lose heart. And and you know what's incredible about the Holy Spirit? is that he gives us the words to say. So if you look at verse 15, for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase in thanksgiving. The resurrection leads to the kingdom work being done. The final point to help Paul be encouraged and not lose heart is future glory. Look at verse 17 and 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to things that are unseen. See, when Paul looked at his life, he looked at everything in perspective. How did his life in the present compare to what his life would be in the future? See all his suffering? See all his hardship? See all his bodily weakness? Notice how he describes it. Light. Like a feather. Look how long it lasts. Light. Momentary. Fleeting. Just just for a short time. But when he, he compared it to that which was to come, how does he describe it? The weight 
of glory. There is eternal, heavy, and never-ending. Future glory put his life's suffering and his life's ministry into perspective. You know, last year was, was a long year and so much happened. One minute we're celebrating the Queen's glory, 70-year reign. The next minute uh, she's passed away. Three prime ministers, more chancellors and health secretaries, financial crisis, strikes, war in Europe. Now these are all the things that are seen. Paul here in this verse says, we're not going to focus on the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they are transient. But you see the things that are unseen? The things in glory? They are eternal. Question, how much of your attention, how much of your mind was taken up with the things that are unseen last year? The things of God. Your future glory. I love what Peter says. He says in 1 Peter Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe him. And you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you're receiving the glory of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Question, are you? You love him, but you don't see him. But even though you don't see him, you believe him. And because you trust in him and you trust in his word, you're filled with the joy of his salvation. So as I conclude this message, let me give you six resolutions, as it, as it were, to help you not lose heart this year. As you, as you and I begin 2023, let's remind ourselves daily, often, that we are recipients of the mercy of God. We have this life and ministry by the mercy of God. Number two, as we live in 2023, let's open up the word and let us set our gaze on the glory of Christ. Let's bask in his presence. Let's receive the light and life that he brings. Number three, as we go into 2023, we need to remember that we are jars of clay, but we are jars of clay because God has put his precious possession of the gospel. Number four, as we go into 2023, we need to know that it's through dying to self daily that we bring about the life of Christ to others daily. Number five, as we go into 2023, we need to know that Jesus is going to raise us, but right now he is renewing us for that future. So let's live in light of the resurrection. All that we do matters. And then number six, as we go into 2023, let's fix our eyes. Not on the things that are seen, but let's fix our eyes on the things that are unseen, our glorious Savior. Let's not lose heart. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for, under your, your Holy Spirit's inspiration, leading Paul to write and pen these words so that we might draw encouragement even those things that brought him great discouragement. Thank you that we have double the reason to be encouraged than to be discouraged. God, if we, we are honest, there are many times in the Christian life we can lose heart. 
There are many lives in the Christian life we feel like we're not making progress, we're not growing in maturity and knowledge and grace. And it's so often because we've forgotten that the shape and the part of the Christian life is death and life, it's resurrection, it's living with our minds set and focused in that which cannot be seen. It's putting our life in perspective by comparing to that which is to come. And so we pray that you would renew our minds, conform our minds to what your word reveals. God, we, we, we so often forget that we live our lives by your mercy. God, the only reason we are here tonight is because of your mercy. The only reason we are not somewhere else is because of your mercy. And so we pray that even as we step out into this new year, that we would have minds that marvel at the mercy that you've poured out on us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his precious and powerful name we pray. Amen.